This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. You may be seated, unless you're, unless you're Bruce. If you're going with Bruce, kids, you're dismissed if you're going to class. Let's pray together, and, and as we do pray, just so you know, this morning my prayer out of Valley of Vision this morning was so perfect, I'm just going to pray it again for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, enlarge our hearts, warm our affections, open our lips, supply words that proclaim that love shines at Calvary. Their grace removes our burdens and heaps them on thy Son, made a transgressor, a curse, and a sin for us. There the sword of thy justice smote the man, thy fellow. There thy infinite attributes were magnified, and infinite atonement was made. There infinite punishment was due, and infinite punishment was endured. Christ was all anguish that we might be all joy, cast off that we might be brought in, trodden down as an enemy that we might be welcomed as a friend, surrendered to hell's worst that we might attain heaven's best, stripped that we might be clothed, wounded that we might be healed, athirst that we might drink, tormented that we might be comforted, made a shame that we might inherit glory, Enter darkness that we might have eternal light. My, our Savior wept that all tears that be wiped might be wiped from our eyes, groaned that we might have endless song, endured all pain that we might have unfading health, bore a crown of thorns that we might have one of glory, bowed his head that we might uplift ours, experienced reproach that we might receive welcome, closed his eyes in death, that we might gaze on unclouded brightness, experience expired that we might forever live. O Father, who spared not thine only Son, that thou mightest spare us. All this transfer thy love designed and accomplished. Help us to adore thee by lips and life. Oh, that our every breath might be ecstatic praise, our every step buoyant with delight as we see our enemies crushed, Satan baffled, defeated, destroyed, sin buried in the ocean of reconciling blood, hell's gates closed, heaven's portal opened. Go forth, O conquering God, and show us the cross, mighty to subdue, comfort, and safe. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 3 this morning if you want to start heading there in your Bibles. And if you're wondering what happened to Jeremiah chapter 2, don't worry, it's still there. Let me explain. As I said a couple weeks ago when we began this study, Jeremiah is as interesting as it is complex. And what I mean by that is 
Jeremiah can be difficult to wrap your arms around because it wasn't written all at one time. Um, kind of like the Psalms, in that after Jeremiah passed, an editor came in and collected all of his works and put them together in this book. Now, now we don't know who that editor was, but we do know <clears throat> that he did not put Jeremiah in chronological order, but rather grouped Jeremiah's writings by content, which means not only is Jeremiah not chronological, but he's also very repetitive. Meaning everything Jeremiah said against Judah is in one section, everything he said against their kings is in one section, everything Judah said about the nations is in one section. Now the reason I point all that out is to explain, because of that repetition, we're not going to go through every single passage. Therefore, on the back table, if you're interested, I have left several copies of the melodic line and the macro structure of Jeremiah so you can see why I'm selecting the different passages I am. You'll see the individual groupings of, of Jeremiah, and you can see why we're preaching. I'm preaching one or two sermons out of each section. However, like I said, Jeremiah is also interesting. A couple weeks ago, I mentioned that the book of Jeremiah is like a drumbeat of failure and sin and judgment. But that, that drumbeat actually does something very neat. You see, like, clearly distinguishable sun rays shining through dark storm clouds. There are distinct beams of hope in Jeremiah where God describes what the future is going to be like after his wrath is satisfied. In other words, the, the continual drumbeat of, of judgment in Jeremiah actually serves to, to make those thin glimmers of light that peek through from time to time that much brighter. And this morning we're going to see one of those rays. You see, this morning we're going to be in the section of Jeremiah where God speaks to Judah as a husband who has been scorned and abandoned. But in very sharp contrast to the darkness of, of Judah's adultery, Jeremiah is going to show us the vivid brightness of the reward of repentance. That's what I want you to see this morning. This morning I want you to see that there is still great reward in repentance. There's still very great reward in repentance, but before we get there, before we get to that great reward, look at Jeremiah chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 1, where God begins with the great need for repentance. The great need for repentance. God says, if a man divorces his wife, and she goes from him, with, from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see, where have you not been ravished? By the waysides you have sat waiting lovers, like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore, the showers have been withheld, and the spring rain has not come, yet you have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. 
Have you not just now called to me? My father, you are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken, but you have, not done, but you have done all the evil that you could. Now, back in verse 1, what's interesting is that God is actually referring to one of the laws that he gave Moses back in Deuteronomy. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 24, God said that if a man divorced his wife and she got married to another man, if that man died or, or if he divorced that, that woman, the original husband could not take that wife back. Now, the, God originally gave that law to protect the wives so that, that husbands couldn't go around and, and kind of legally share wives something that they were doing. And so God said, no, you can't give up your wife and then get her back and call it legal. But God points that law out here. He brings that law up to emphasize that what we actually see here is the opposite. We actually see the wife trying to take advantage of the husband, not the other way around. For example, flip back maybe a page or two to chapter two, beginning in verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 20, God speaking of these people said, For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said I will not serve. He's talking about when he freed them from Egypt. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree you bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure and pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. How can you say I am not unclean? I have not gone after Baals. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there, a wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat, sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? Listen to this. This is God speaking of his wife. None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month, they will find her. Look back a few more verses to chapter 2, verse 10. God said, For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and sea, or send to Kadar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their gods for that which does not profit. He's saying, in other words, even the pagans don't do what you're doing. And skip down a few verses to verse 14. God said, Is Israel a slave? Is he a homeborn servant? Why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Tophanes have shaved the crown of your head. In other words, these lovers that, that Judah has gone after have now enslaved them. The people that they left God for have now made them their slaves. And so flip back to verse 4 of chapter 3. 
after, after his, his people left and did everything that they could to leave, and then the people enslaved him. Now God says in chapter 3, verse 4, Have you not now just called to me? My father, you are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken, but you have done all the evil that you could. So now that their lovers have turned on them, they've, they've come back to God begging him to save them. But God is saying, I, I see your mouth moving. You're saying words, but that's all it is, is just words, because you have done everything, every evil that you could possibly think of. And the only reason you're coming back to me is because you got busted. It caught you. Not because you're sorry. Now, you might be asking, how does a, a nation commit adultery? Like, how does Judah commit adultery against God? Because when we think of adultery, we usually think of sexual sin. But that's not all adultery is. You see, adultery is also about satisfaction and pleasure and fulfillment. And Judah was looking to other nations and, and to pagan idols for, for satisfaction and provision and fulfillment instead of God. You know, I wonder, if you opened up your little black book of life, what would it say under the heading, for a good time call? Like, have you ever been as satisfied by God as you have been by new things? Or have you ever felt the same release of stress and anxiety because God loves you? as you have felt when something goes your way politically? Have you ever felt as agitated about not being able to be with God as you have about not being able to do something you want to do, like watch a movie or go somewhere? Or have you ever put as much time and energy and planning and desire into becoming more like Christ as you have in your career path? Brothers and sisters, we need to be careful that we don't look down our nose at Judah. Like in one breath say, it's disgusting how they treated their God who loved them so much. And then in the next breath say, sorry, I can't make it to church on Sunday. I got this idol over here that needs some attention. There's a word for that. It starts with an H and it rhymes with hypocrisy. In other words, there is still a great need for repentance in every single one of our lives. Repentance is not an event. It's a lifestyle. Don't tune me out yet because it gets way worse. <laughs> Don't look at me like that. I told you Jeremiah was going to be like this. Look at, at Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me, but she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of, what, of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear 
But she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with some with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. Have you ever been in a conversation at work where someone kind of surprises you with a little too much about their personal lives and you're not sure what to say? Like Jeremiah is just sitting here enjoying his lamb kebabs and God rolls in and he's like, hey, did you see what my wife did? And she cheated over there and I caught her in somebody in bed over here. What's Jeremiah supposed to say? Oh, that's a bummer, God. I hope that works out for I don't know. I want you to understand what God is saying here. You see, about a thousand years before Jeremiah, God had brought, Egypt, uh, brought Israel out of Egypt. He had rescued them from, the, from their slavery in Egypt. And at, at that time, Israel was made up of 12 tribes. He led them all through the Red Sea and the desert, and he led them all the way up into Judea, where he, he divided and gave each tribe a little piece of the promised land. But after... After about 400 years, three, 400 years, God established kings to rule over those 12 tribes. There's King David and then his son, King Solomon. But after King Solomon died, there was a mutiny. And this single nation of Israel broke into two. The northern tribe was now 10 northern tribes. It was called Israel. The southern tribe was two of the tribes, and it's now called Judah. So you have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Fast forward another 400 years or so, about 100 years before Jeremiah was around, and this northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes, had completely gone off the rails with idolatry and paganism, and so God judged them. He brought in the Assyrians to literally wipe them off the face of the map. It was violent and it was brutal, and Judah witnessed it all. They saw Assyria, they saw the, the brutality of Assyria, that God allowed Assyria to show toward Israel because of their sin. With that history in mind, look again at what God said to Judah in verse 8. He's saying, she, that's Judah, Judah saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear but she too went and played the whore because she took her whoredom lightly. In other words, she didn't listen. She didn't listen to, or, or, or pay attention to what she witnessed happen to Israel. And where does that leave Judah in God's eyes? Look at verse 11. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. So whereas in verses 1 through 5 we saw the great need for repentance, the second thing we see in verses 6 and 6 through 11 is the great neglect of repentance. The great neglect of repentance. As many of you know, as my parents have endured, as my poor wife has come to embrace, I have ADD. I find it. Extremely difficult to focus on certain tasks for long periods of time. In fact, if I do, if I do try really hard to focus on something for too long, I get de devastating headaches. However, you want to know something interesting. 
I don't find it difficult to focus on some things, things that I love. Like I can focus on things like playing basketball and sermon prep for hours. But what, and no, not at the same time. <laughs> for those of you that are like, that explains a lot. <laughs> but what I mean is, is that like spiritual ADD, we're satisfied with God for a moment until something we think is more interesting, more beautiful, is flashed before our, our minds and demands our attention. And not only are, are each and every one of us drawn away from God by our, our sin at different times and in different ways, but we do it, not with just a few hundred years of history or, or the example of another nation, but we turn from God and look elsewhere for pleasure and satisfaction and fulfillment while neglecting an entire, entire Bible's worth of warnings to the dangers of it. And maybe you might be thinking, but Pastor Grant, I, I, I repented when I was saved and I meant it. I, I mean, I genuinely want to follow God. I, I don't mean to do those things. To which I would say I get it, but that's the point. That's kind of like telling the police officer I didn't mean to rear-end that person while I was texting and driving. In other words, one of the marks of a maturing Christian is an increasing understanding of not only the depth of their depravity, but their struggle to control it. A growing humility that is paralleled by a, a growing need for God. For example, I've shared this with you before, I know I have, but after Paul wrote the first six and a half chapters of Romans, which are perhaps the six densest chapters of theology, his conclusion was not, wow, I really think I got this down. His conclusion after he wrote all these incredible things about God was not, therefore, be as holy as I am. No, in chapter 7, after Paul recorded all these amazing truths about God, his conclusion was, what a wretched man I am. Who will relieve me from this body of death? Which leads to the next section of our passage. Because not only is there a great need for repentance, but since there is also a great neglect for repentance among God's people, look at verse 12 through 14, where we see there is still a great call to repentance. Verse 12 God said, go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on, your, on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Now, I don't want you to miss a couple of things. First, don't miss that God is still offering repentance to the people that He talked the way He talked about in chapter 2. 
that northern kingdom that had failed so badly. But second, don't miss what he says that repentance looks like. Back in chapter 2, God explained that the people were saying, I'm innocent, I'm clean, I haven't done anything wrong. Which is why he says in verse 13, only acknowledge your guilt and that you have not obeyed my voice. That's all God says he wants them to do. Just admit you've been unfaithful. How incredible is our God? It's crazy. I think I've told you this story before, but the way you know that you understand how incredible our God is, is it will make you uncomfortable. The way you know how, how loving our God is, is it will make you uncomfortable. Like Peter, when Jesus tried to wash his feet. If you ever thought to yourself, God, no, you can't love me that much. You're starting to get a taste. I told you this story before, but a pastor friend of mine in Michigan told me about a couple at their church who they had been good friends with for years. And what happened is, is that it had come out that the wife of this friend was not just unfaithful, but she was a serial adulterer. You see, the husband traveled for his job and and it had come to light that often when he was gone, his wife would meet other men at hotels and even at their home. So naturally, everyone was as shocked as they were devastated that something like this could happen right under their noses. So in the face of this terrible news, in his first counseling meeting with this husband, this pastor explained some of the legitimate biblical options that he had. And then he asked the husband how he would like to proceed. And I want you to listen to this husband's answer. This husband said about his wife who had cheated on him dozens, if not hundreds of times. If she's willing to repent, I would still like to have her as my wife. So here was a woman who had repeatedly cheated on her husband and his response was to forgive her and take her back. I mean, I don't know about you, but my first response was like, is there something wrong here? Is there some kind of like weird codependency thing going on? Or... But in reality, what's happening is, is when we see or hear a real example of what God did for us, it's shocking. It's jarring. It makes us uncomfortable. But that's the God we serve a God who is so loving that He often makes people feel uncomfortable by loving them so much. A God who offers repentance even after we've at least actively, if not intentionally, destroyed the relationship. So what happened to Judah? Did, did they repent after this incredible call? Well, I would say that's where this story gets even more interesting. You see, this call to repentance is not new. As I said earlier, God rescued this nation out of Egypt. But even though God rescued them from slavery, almost immediately in the desert, He called them to repent because they started complaining. 
So God judged them in the desert, and no one over the age of 20 was allowed to go into the promised land. Millions left Egypt. No one under 20 was allowed to go into the promised land. No one over 20 was allowed to go into the promised land. Then years after, this continued call to repentance, God judged Israel because of their continued sin. And suddenly, millions were cut in in five-sixths when ten of the twelve nations were, were divided and God judged Israel and took them away. But God kept calling Judah to repent. Yet years later, as we've seen, Judah refused to heed the call to repentance and they continued in this adultery against God. And by the end of Jeremiah, we're going to see that God judged them and they were taken away to Babylon. But still God persisted to call them to repent while they were in exile. Yet when Judah was finally allowed to leave Babylon 70 years later and allowed to come back to the promised land, only about maybe 30,000 returned. And by the time we get to Malachi, the, the last book of the Old Testament, we see that God is still calling those few who return to repent. What I want you to understand is, is that Israel kept dwindling and dwindling and dwindling from millions to hundreds of thousands to, to 30,000 to what seemed like none. People who did what call, God called them to do. In fact, about 400 years after Jeremiah, Israel had dwindled from millions to a faithful remnant of one. A single man who loved God. A single man who obeyed his laws, who never cheated on God once. One man who actually perfectly obeyed God. And did what he was called to do. And his name was Jesus Christ. And he was the true Israel. But here's the thing. God knew we weren't going to be able to return to him. He knew we weren't going to be able to obey his commands. So this Jesus didn't just show up by accident. In fact, he didn't even come for himself. No, he came to obey and submit and love God on our behalf because God knew we couldn't do it on our own. Everything Israel, and listen, everything you and I have always been called to do but never could, Jesus did it for you. And all he asks of you is two things. First, he says, just like I told Judah and Israel, simply admit that you're guilty and you have not obeyed. Just say it. And second, believe, therefore, that I lived the perfect life that you cannot on your behalf. That's it. Just admit you're wrong and that you need my life. Just confess you're a sinner and believe you need God to credit Jesus' perfect life to you. And you know what? He says... He will give you not only the desire and the ability to repent, but He'll credit His perfect life to you as well. Whether you don't believe in this is your very first time saying, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus' perfect life, or it's your thousandth time, it doesn't matter. Jesus offers His perfect life to you. 
And there is a still a great call to repent. Which finally leads to the last thing we see in our passage. There is still a great need to repent. There is still a great neglect of repentance. There is still a great call to repent. Because finally, there is still a great reward to repentance. There is still a great reward to repentance. Look at verse 15. God said, after he called his children back to him, he said, return to me, repent, I will not forever be angry. He says in verse 15, and I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or even be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel. They get put back together. And together they shall come from the land of the north to the, to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. It's this amazing reunion. Now, why does God say nobody will care about the Ark of the Covenant? I mean, I kind of thought that movie was cool. I think it'd be neat if somebody found it. What you have to understand is anytime the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned, it's always in the context of the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant was all about being with God. You see, God could not be with sinful people. They evaporate. So within the temple of the Old Testament, there was this small room with this massive, thick divider curtain thing where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And once a year, the high priest would enter that room and sprinkle blood on, the, on this Ark of the Covenant in order to be able to meet with God on behalf of the people. But God says here in Jeremiah that there is coming a day when nobody will even care about the ark because it will be obsolete. He's saying there will no longer be a need for a high priest or an ark or a temple or even sacrifices for people to be able to be with God, to be in His presence. Why? Because on that day, God will be with His people wherever they are. Now, what you have to understand is, is that means something about blood. How can God be with his people all the time? Well, brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you that that day is today. I mean, when was the last time, besides a few seconds ago, that you thought about the ark or were worried about it? Well, that's because, listen, through Jesus Christ, no matter how far you walk away from God, when you heed His call to repent, listen, when you confess your sins and cry out to Him for forgiveness, when you turn around, here's what you're going to realize, that God has been standing right there with you the whole time to welcome you back. But I want you to listen to me very closely because here is the great reward. You see, I think oftentimes we're nervous or anxious to turn back from our sin. 
to go to God with our sin, to own our sin. Because we expect to see an angry, disappointed, indignant God. Like, go to your room. How could you? I mean, after all that I've done for you, I'm so disappointed with you. That's what we expect to see. Brothers and sisters, because of Jesus Christ, that is not who you will see. No, if you believe in Jesus Christ, every time you repent, every time you turn from your sin and cry out to God, you will turn to see a God who is looking at you in all your brokenness, all your failure and all your shame with a smile on his face. If you believe in Jesus, you'll see a God with love in his eyes and forgiveness on his lips. As though somehow you succeeded like Jesus did. Because listen, when I say if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you believe that he has given his perfect life to you in exchange for your broken one, God doesn't look at you and see your failure. No, when you repent and turn back to God, he only sees Jesus in you. And, and don't think for a second that I'm saying that God is some kind of ignorant old man with bad eyesight. Like, oh, I hope he doesn't realize I'm not Jesus. No, that's not what I'm saying. God knows exactly how pitifully wretched we are. In fact, when we turn back to God, he knows more about why we're con what we're confessing than we do. But here's the thing. When you turn back to God, you will see his welcoming eyes. Because he's just that satisfied with Jesus' death on the cross for you. When you turn from your sin, you're still going to get the loving, forgiving reception of God because he is that satisfied with Jesus' death on your behalf. He's not going to just look at you and say, you know what, I'm a loving God, that's okay. That's not why. It's because he's so satisfied in Jesus Christ, he's going to open his arms to you. And brothers and sisters, the great reward that is found in repentance is because of Jesus Christ and because of him alone, you get to be with that God for eternity. His presence is is the great reward of repentance. A God who continues to call us to repentance because He not only paid the price for our sins, but He also gave us the ability to repent from those sins. That God, the great reward of repentance is that we get to be in the presence of that God for eternity. The good shepherd who leaves his flock for one sheep. The, the prodigal father who's overjoyed to see that his sons and daughters have returned. We get to be with the almighty creator of heaven and earth who is so perfectly satisfied with Jesus Christ that we'll hear him say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. That is the God we get to be with and that is the great reward of repentance. So let praises now awake the dawn will greet your mercy with a song. Your people stand and sing for all your loving kindness. 
You've carried us in faithfulness upon the paths of righteousness. Our gracious King, you've crowned us with your loving kindness. How great is your loving kindness, O God of goodness, our joy forever.